This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. The Met's current season features works by composers who revered Wagner, reviled him, and those who simply couldn't make up their minds. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we investigate how composers across various regions reacted to Wagner's revolutionary musical ideas. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Richard Wagner's Der Fliegende Hollander, which has a new production at the Met this season, set new directions in operatic style and performance. I'm Naomi Baratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have the first of a four-part series featuring lecturer and musicologist Matthew Timmermans taking a closer look at how German opera composers reacted to Wagner. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me early in the morning. I'm hoping you're a more chipper crowd than my students at 11 o'clock in the morning. So I just wanted to say a little note about the gestation of this particular series. Um, So when I was talking to Stuart uh, about an idea for this season, he came up with the idea of a sort of a national operatic treasures idea. And I said, oh, that's really cool. But oh, my God, there's so many operas in the season. What am I going to do? So then I thought, oh, why don't we narrow it down and just pick one of the most famous examples. Wagner, big shocker, you've all seen him, we know he's famous now, Um, and then basically see how Wagner was influenced by national traditions and then how he then proceeded to influence those. So that's kind of the idea of uh, this entire presentation. Uh, And so as has already been mentioned, there's four lectures in the series. Today we're doing German, so we're looking at Rosenkavalier and of course a Wagner opera, which is Die Fliegende Holländer. And then in the French one, which is next week, we'll be looking only at Massenet, because that's unfortunately the only French composer we have in the Met season this year. Uh, Gounod is ne- hopefully next year, which would be really exciting. And then the fo- uh, third one will be Italian. We're only looking at Puccini, mostly because I thought adding some other ones would just become too much to handle. And then the last one is Slavic. And I use the word Slavic here, particularly because we're looking at Slavic languages, because, of course, we don't see many Russian operas or Czech operas happen a lot here, particularly in America. Uh, but the ones we'll be looking at there is uh, Katya Kavanova, as well as uh, the Queen of Spades, which, of course, already passed by Tchaikovsky. So now you all have your bearings. Let's move on to Wagner. So the reason I chose Wagner is because in scholarship, but also generally in opera, many people consider that he made a paradigm shift in music. And a lot of people like to say about Wagner, uh, for composers who came after him, basically, you either continued his ideas and evolved them, or you rejected them. And you were also very vocal about that. And part of the reason for that is that Wagner himself was very vocal about his ideas. So they were already in everybody's minds. So whenever the critics went to operas, uh, this was, sorry, just so everyone knows, this was because Wagner actually published a lot of articles saying, oh, I'm going to do this, and you're going to hear this in my opera. So people knew what they were going to when they went to his operas and what to listen for. So then the critics would go to everyone else's operas after, such as like Bizet and his Carmen and things like this, and they'd be listening for like, oh, do you hear Wagner's ideas there? Oh, this is Wagnerian. Oh, this is not Wagnerian. And then depending on the critic, whether they were a supporter or not, they would then proceed to, you know, either destroy that opera or say it's the next biggest thing. Anyway, so I figured it's a great way to start with looking at all these other operas that I like to think are very much influenced by Wagner, but we'll see in some of the... Today's, all of them are pretty much Wagner supporters. But in the other ones, a lot of other nationalities were skeptical of it, partially because, you know, they didn't want to be dominated by a German, 
as opposed to maybe wanting to create their own nationalistic style because the 19th century was very much a time of nationalism, right? It was being like, oh, we're French, oh, we're German, oh, we're Italian or Russian or what have you. Um, so basically what we're going to explore is kind of how these composers define themselves within their own nation. So I just want to give a brief history of what opera kind of was like at this time, just to give you kind of an idea of particularly with the nationalities and how opera was growing. So then we can move from that to see how Wagner reacted to that. So during the early 19th century, when Wagner was beginning his career, operatic traditions were actually becoming more reified at this time. In other words, they were becoming associated with particular traditions. You had the French style of opera and you had the Italian one. And then, so what's important to note at this time though, the Italian one was still major. Basically, the Italians were known for opera and then other countries would actually import Italian opera because the people there, it was very prestigious to be like, oh, in Germany, I'm the prince here and I brought an Italian troupe to come and perform an Italian opera and oh, how much does this do for my prestige, right? So, and then that was basically kind of the real, uh, the tradition that was moving across the Western hemisphere. But then we had in France, they also had a tradition that was very popular there, but it was more local. It stayed there and it was very much associated with the monarchy, but it didn't really travel out as much until later as we'll see. Um, and then, but it was one more thing about France is what is actually in the 19th century, Paris was really sort of an economic uh, epicenter. And so everyone went there, especially for the arts in order to make money, basically. So we actually begin to see a lot of composers from other nationalities going to, well, first they would go to Italy to train to learn Italian melody, of course, because everyone wanted Italian opera. And then they're like, oh, but the money is in France. So then they go to Paris and that's where they make their career. So, I mean, we have examples that many of you know. I mean, Mozart didn't go to France, but Mozart went to Italy to learn Italian melody, and then he came back and came back to Germany and brought that with him, right? And then we have other German examples, such as, well, we have Gluck, who went, again, was a German. He went to Italy, then he went back to Vienna, and then, he went, then the Viennese apparently started not to like him, so then he went to France, and then there he again made his career. Where I'm getting to with this point, basically, is that the most famous composer actually during Wagner's time, when Wagner's sort of learning and becoming, learning his style, was Giacomo Meyerbeer. Giacomo Meyerbeer was actually a German who then, uh, he was born in Berlin, and then he went to Italy to learn melody, and this was just after when Rossini was sort of receding from the spotlight because he was then going to make his big sort of, you know, uh, coming out party in Paris, in France. And then basically Meyerbeer then went from there also to Paris, although Rossini kind of started the whole French grand opera tradition, it was really Meyerbeer who created the form that was then picked up by all the French composers thereafter. And so he was very famous at this time for his operas like Robert le Diable, and then Les Huguenots, and then Le Prophète. And so all of these were sort of uh, seen as the big monumental pieces, and all of the money was being poured into them, and every composer basically wanted to be Meyerbeer. And this did not exclude Wagner. <laughs> So in 1939, uh, Wagner actually, we're now going back away from France for a second. Wagner in 1939 was in Riga, Latvia. And so as many of you probably know about Wagner's life, he was constantly fleeing his creditors because he had a tendency to spend a little bit too much money. So this was, uh, there was no exception when he was in Latvia in 1939. What he ended up doing actually was taking a boat from Riga, which is here, and then he kind of took this boat through well, basically the Baltic Sea, and then back up. And then there was a bunch of storms happening near Norway. And so he actually kind of got stranded here in a, a, a place I actually can't pronounce. Anyway, he got stuck here and that's actually where he got some inspiration for the Flying Dutchman. So that's why that's important. And then he came down and went to London. And then from there, he went to Paris. And so in Paris, part of the reasons he probably wanted to go there was the chance for fame and fortune, right? But also because while he was in Riga, he actually had a chance to meet Meyerbeer. And Meyerbeer was actually quite interested in Wagner. And so he already had this very um, famous individual who was kind of rooting for him in France. So while in France, although he did create more debt and so actually had to constantly avoid his creditors while in France as well, which I'm sure did not help him at all. But during this time and also while he was in Riga, he was creating his third opera actually, and it was called Rienzi. And Rienzi, basically the idea, although it eventually became a German opera, was to create in the French grand opera mold of Meyerbeer. Because what he wanted to do was Meyerbeer to basically petition him to have this performed at the Opéra. And so the Opéra is in Paris was actually the basically the largest theater they had with the most resources and all of the money went there. 
it, they weren't very creative with the name, I know, but later it got a much better name that we know today, which is the Palais Garnier, which is sort of continuing that tradition, although the Opéra burnt down several times. I'm sure you're not surprised given the amount of candles that happened at that time. So basically, he tried to get this opera performed at the Opéra, and they refused it. And so then he kind of brought out his Flying Dutchman, which he had been thinking about, of course, inspired by his sort of experience basically being tossed around by the sea in the fjords. But unfortunately, when he gave, he auditioned with this uh, at the Opéra, and he had Senta's ballad, and he also had the chorus at the beginning of Act Three, which they apparently did not like any of the music, but they did like the plot. So they bought the plot for $500, which in the end, Wagner, very disillusioned with his, his reception in Paris, basically said, I'm going to take that $500 and I'm going to go back to Germany. So back to Germany he goes. Now, something important to note, though, is the reason he was heading to Germany is because he was going to Dresden. And in Dresden is where Meyerbeer actually organized, because Meyerbeer still had a lot of ties with Germany, because Germany was very proud of him. He organized the premiere of Rienzi in Dresden for Wagner. Now, I don't know if some of you know this, um, but Wagner later would become uh, a, quite a loud voice speaking against particularly Jews and also the French style. And it's kind of interesting to note that it was actually Meyerbeer that gave him his start. And Meyerbeer was one of the people he most fiercely criticized. And I mean, we can argue, not that this is necessarily the subject of this particular uh, uh, talk, but it can be noted that it might be because he was trying to make space for himself. He had to get rid of his sort of biggest contender so that Wagner could then shine by saying, this is bad, I'm good, basically. Rienzi was a huge success. The Germans were like, oh my goodness, we have our own German-French grand opera. What could be better than this? So they absolutely adored it, which is funny because looking back on it, all the Wagnerians are like, ugh, that opera Rienzi was so terrible. It was so French. And now it's absolutely beloved. So after that, they said, give us something else. And lo and behold, there comes the Flying Dutchman. Um, so it was going to be giving his premiere there. But with the Flying Dutchman, Wagner wanted to do something different. He wanted to move away from these French sort of uh, ties that he had. And basically what he wanted to do was create a very Germanic opera. And so what he did, rather than the sort of light comedies that were happening in Germany at the time, he wanted to go back to some of the older composers, particularly Weber and Marschner. And this is particularly because he was actually conducting a lot of those operas when he was growing up. So he knew them very well. So it was very convenient to choose those as sort of heralding his career. So here's two. Uh, I don't know if we've ever seen that at the Met, um, but that's one of Weber's most famous operas. And then there's Der Vampir, which we definitely haven't seen here, which is by Marschner, which is quite interesting. And yes, it's about a vampire. It's exactly what you think it is. And you'd be surprised. <laughs> the story, it's actually quite good. Um, there's two recordings. Actually, this one has Jonas Kaufmann in it, which is quite interesting. So from here, we have The Flying Dutchman is Born. And so how the, the Dutchman was created, basically, was he took these pieces that he had, right, the melodic material that was in them, and then he sort of expanded it and evolved from that material to then create an entire three-hour opera. And so this sort of became a trend in Wagner's operas, this idea that he sort of would take melodic material, which he called leitmotifs, and then sort of transform it and expand it into an entire opera so that it had this sort of organicism throughout it that it was connected all the way throughout. So that's what we're going to explore today, is this idea, because then we'll see that pop up in all of the other national traditions, as this idea of organicism and leitmotifs become very important to making opera, opera being the sound of opera, match what's actually going on stage in the opera. So rather than people, you know, singing an aria and then stopping and being like, now that emotion's over, let's move on. Now, they, well, maybe every time they feel that emotion, that melodic material would come back again and again and again. So... You may think, oh, what's this leitmotif? This sounds like a really strange thing that he's saying. I don't know what this word means. Actually, you do. And this is because leitmotifs were picked up by musicians who were hired to create the music for films. And so basically in a film, all you're, a lot of the time, all you're hearing is a leitmotific score, where the idea is like a particular character will have a theme song, and then every time that character comes on stage, you hear that theme song. By the end of the film, you're like, oh my god, I don't want to hear that theme song anymore. And so forth and so forth. You'll feel the same way about Wagner after, I promise. No, I'm kidding. It's great. So anyway, just a quick definition, which I have put on your, your cute little handout. So a leitmotif is basically a recurring musical idea that identifies maybe a character, a feeling, a situation, an event, what have you. Um, and so just so that I can prove to you that I'm right and you all know what leitmotifs is, I decided to create my own little game called Name That Leitmotif. <gasps> I really should put game music in here, but I didn't. But that's okay. We're going to move on from that. So, but yeah, I would like you to guess what these are, and we'll move on from there.
I get the feeling I don't need to play that more for you, but I haven't watched this film in a long time, so I just really needed it. Um, can anyone tell me what that what the film is and also what the theme is actually uh, denoting in the particular plot? Gone with the Wind, and it's the Terra theme. So Terra is the um, the the, the uh, what the, the plantation thing. I was going to say the estate, but yes, the plantation on which they live, and it just pops up everywhere in that film. You know, it's five hours of gloriousness. Anyway, next one. Some people get it. Uh, so what was it? And what is it? Yes, it's Star Wars and it's Darth Vader, or particularly the Empire. Um, and then here we have our last one. You'll all get this, I know it. It's, yeah, it's James Bond, and basically it comes whenever James Bond is gonna do, I don't know, something impressive, you know, the car or whatever comes out, and oh my God, the James Bond theme. So you all know leitmotifs. So now I want you to help me figure out what the leitmotifs might mean in The Flying Dutchman. And the reason you might be thinking, oh, but I have no idea. But actually, usually when a leitmotif first appears, at least in this early phase with Flying Dutchman, before later composers, it usually is sung first. And so the words that it's associated with when it's sung is usually what it means. And that was sort of the way of getting people who were listening, who were at the premiere, being like, oh, I know what that means. So. Here is uh, Senta's Ballad. So just a word about this. Senta's Ballad happens at the beginning of Act 2. And this is a very interesting part in the opera because it's kind of, not only was Senta's Ballad used to create the rest of the leitmotifs in the opera, but it's sort of got this meta-narrative, right? Because she's singing basically the narrative of the Flying Dutchman and telling the story that every seven years, the Flying Dutchman comes to shore and he searches for a woman who will be faithful to him until death. And then he will be released from his endless, deathless wandering of the world, right? And so, of course, it's interesting that then that was used to create the meta-narrative of all of Dutchman. So this is our first one, and if you can guess what it's about. Do I have any guesses? Yes, it's the ship. So it's particularly the ship and the sailors on the ship entering every time. So we've named that leitmotif. Now you will be shocked, I'm sure, that this leitmotif opens the entire opera in the overture. Um, and it's, it's interesting to note, well, not necessarily interesting, but um, that the overture was written last. So he already had all the leitmotifs and he kind of created this overture. But it's kind of nice to think that the overture actually it opens with this. So the idea that the Flying Dutchman is coming and the opera is beginning, right? So here it is here. Same music, right? So often after a leitmotif is sung, right, so she sang it and kind of gave it, she did the yo-ho, yo-ho, right? She gave away the kind of the sound that was signifying, obviously, the sailors kind of screaming that. Um, but usually it will appear only in the orchestra. So it's important when we're listening to leitmotifs that we have to kind of get the melodic contour and then kind of push our listening to the orchestra for when we're going to hear it, as opposed to just always focusing on the voice. Because Wagner really sort of takes away from like what we see in Italian opera where all the emphasis is on melody, right? And now it's moving to the orchestra really having a voice here rather than their mm-ba-ba, 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 and so forth. All right, so the next place, again, you'll be shocked to see where the next place is gonna show up, but is when the ship first enters on stage. Uh, first, what's happening here is the ship is coming and so Daland, who's Senta's father, has moored his ship here because of a storm, the storm being the Dutchman, and so now the Dutchman ship is going to appear out of nowhere. And the watchman, you'll hear he's singing his song. And then you hear the orchestra sort of imitate the wind. And then the motif we all love. Right? This song. Mm-hmm. 
our next clip, we're going to now watch another one of the leitmotifs from Senta's Ballad. And again, based on the words, perhaps you can guess what it means. Okay? So just before I ask you, one thing you'll notice there, she was singing, of course, the hoe hoe part, and then the orchestra was actually the one doing the leitmotif. So this is one of the few leitmotifs where it actually doesn't get sung. It always appears in the orchestra. So when you're listening to that, you're listening to basically the whirring in, in the orchestra. Anyway, any guesses to what that one might have been? Exactly. It's the curse of the Dutchman that curses him to basically wander without death endlessly and torture him. So, big surprise, it's in the overture which will be just helpful because you'll hear it um, without the voice, which will help you just identify it throughout the rest of the opera. And that's it again. And here it goes again. Again. good? Everyone hear it? Perfect. So when this happens, again, shockingly, I mean, the drama is very predictable at this point once you know the leitmotifs. So when the Dutchman gets off his ship, as he's just parked there, as we saw, um, he comes out and the first thing he has to do, of course, is talk about, oh my god, I'm on land, thank goodness. And why is this a great thing? Because I've been tortured for these past seven years. And so when he says that, that leitmotif will play in the orchestra. So right when I play the clip, you'll immediately hear it and then it will kind of develop a bit, and then when he starts to sing, you'll again hear it in the orchestra underneath him, okay? Right there. So the what you heard that where you hear the that that last part in the orchestra that's just another part of that leitmotif which is really saying sort of the wind and the howling that's all it's doing but it doesn't come up as often as the bum 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 so from there we're now back at Santa's ballad where we hear the third and probably the most important leitmotif in all of Dutchman. Exactly. So it's basically, the, we call it the redemption motif, but the idea that the Dutchman will be redeemed by a woman who is faithful unto death toward him. So where we first end up hearing this motif is actually not with words like we just heard in Senta's Ballad, where she sings it and explains what the motif is. Actually, we hear it only in the orchestra, and it's just before. So Act 2 opens where all of the women of the village are spinning. 
And they're spinning because that's what they do in order to get a present from their husbands. Un unclear what the present from their husbands is, but we're just not going to question that. So what happens here is Senta, being the sensible girl she is, she's like, no, I'm more interested in staring at this photo, thanks. Um, and the picture is of the Flying Dutchman. And so what happens is this woman, who seems to be the leader of the spinners, um, comes over and says, oh, you're being idle. How terrible. You must be like ever, uh, the rest of us. And then she kind of, says, Senta says nothing, really, and then looks at her, and then the motif plays, because she has a greater purpose, and she'll show you. So you can see how the motif played, and then she looked, the photo in her hand is supposed to be the Dutchman, right? She carries it around in this production rather than being on a wall. She's very obsessed in this production. Um, and so, of course, we hear the redemption motif because she knows that <laughs> she wants to be his redeemer. One thing I did want to mention, I said I'd talk about the other performer in this particular production, and so I'm going to do so now. So the other one is Simon Estes. This was a really big deal in 1986 because uh, he was the first black man, particularly at Bayreuth, to perform this. And although there had been other people of color at Bayreuth, particularly uh, most notable is 1961, was Grace Bunbury doing Tannhäuser. The Dutchman is so aligned with this sort of idea of uh, Wagner as the, the, the wanderer and the tortured soul um, making music that moves us, that to have then um, a black individual embody this role for a lot of German people was like, oh, you can't have that because it's, it's, you know, it's A, this, this sort of supposed to be this Dutchman, A, and B, it's supposed to sort of be really uh, a metaphor for Wagner. So that was a big deal as opposed to other roles, like when Grace Bunbury performed Venus, she was still kind of, although it, it, the role is a goddess, she was performing a sexual goddess. And so there were still some stereotypes that associated with that role that made it a little more okay in their minds. And that's why this debut probably happened so much later in the 80s as opposed to the 60s. As many of you know, I'm obsessed with singers and particularly sopranos. And so I could not bring myself not to talk about a bunch of sopranos after doing all of this. But before we do that, what I wanted to note is now you can imagine with all these leitmotifs how it brings really a sort of... Uh, an overall uh, connection between the opera, as opposed to maybe like a Verdi opera, not to say there's anything wrong with Verdi, but I'm just saying where it's more focused on particular uh, one melody now, one melody later. They don't usually recur until later in his career, of course. But in this case, it sort of brings a sort of organicism, I guess we could say, to the entire work. So here we have one of my favorite sopranos, as many of you will know, who came to the Singers of the Ring uh, lecture series last year, and this is Astrid Varnai. Now, Astrid Varnai, uh, for those of you who don't know, was actually made her debut very famously at the Metropolitan Opera in 1941? Somewhere around there, in the early 40s. And it, she made it because actually all of the, um, she ended up singing Zieglinde in Die Valkyrie because the Zieglinde at that time was sick. And so she made this sort of very auspicious debut that no one knew was coming because she wasn't singing anything. She hadn't sung anywhere yet. So it was on the Met that she was like, ah, oh, hello everybody. Um, and so she has this really distinctive sound um, and she's very much known for having kind of an ugly timbre to her voice, which this is where I go to my, 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 my little term here, which I call Senta scream, which I like to think happened at the end there where she screams and throws herself off. But it's because it's, it's not in a derogatory way so much as it's just thrilling, right? You want to create this idea of excitement through the voice and it kind of, while singing, kind of sounds like a scream. So Astrid Varnay was particularly famous for this because her voice was just, it was piercing, full-bodied, and but it had that ugly timbre I mentioned. It is important to note that Astrid Varnay became quite famous because she was one of the few Americans that was chosen after when Bayreuth reopened after World War II, which Bayreuth was having a lot of issues, of course, because it was so um, associated with Hitler's reign. And so they brought in an American, which of course the Germans were like, whoa, 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 what? And then it turned out that they loved her and she became kind of the queen of Bayreuth for about our decade, sorry. Um, anyway, here we're going to hear her do Santa Scream. And I can say I've used this uh, particular recording to wake up a few people many, many times. So please do enjoy. Santa. 
So you really feel like she's, you know, throwing her lungs out as she sings those notes, which is just thrilling. So another person who's very famous for her scream is uh, Leonie Riesenek. And so some of you may know her again. I spoke about her in um, the Singers of the Ring series that we did last year. And she was very famous for a scream she sort of interpolated and added into Die Valkyrie. And so this is when um, Sigmund takes the sword out of the tree at the end of Act One. And then she, the sister, Zieglinde, is like, oh my God. And then she just shrieks, um, which is not written in the score and very much was something very associated with Riesenek because she was a very spontaneous woman, shall we say. Um, but also in her voice, she does kind of have this shrieky quality, which is thrilling. It made her high notes really unpredictable, number one. She's more than one time where she did not sing the right note, but it was glorious nonetheless. Um, but in this particular one, she is in tune. Um, but I just want to give you a sense of that quality. And she was a very famous Senta. Here we have her singing it in 1959 at Bayreuth. <laughs> She really takes her time on the high note, which I absolutely love. Um, so the last one is a little is uh, an interesting one I added in. I don't know if she's necessarily one of my favorite Sentas, but she was very famous in Germany, and particularly because one is the way she looks. She's was this blonde woman. She was gorgeous. She was tiny, and so all the directors were like, "You, you, I need you as my lead." But uh, Anya Celia has a very interesting career in that she started her career actually as a coloratura soprano. And so she sang the Queen of the Night and Magic Flute and things like this. And then she kind of, by a force of will, was kind of like, no, I'm going to sing Wagner. And so then she went to Bayreuth, sang some small roles, and then became a lead there. And she also ended up actually singing things like Brunhilde and things like that. And Elektra, she sang very, not at Bayreuth, obviously, but she sang these very large roles. But what's interesting about her voice, it has this piercing quality to it, but it also has this sort of... Mm, a youthful quality to it as well, in the sense that it's kind of a lighter sound. But I think a lot of people found her really, especially in something like one of the Wagnerian blonde roles. They're called this because, you know, the in Tannhäuser and Lohengrin, all the women who are the leads are blonde, white women. Anyway, so this is Anya Celia singing it, and you'll kind of hopefully hear the difference. She was actually the only one to get a studio recording of this opera, which is kind of, is interesting. I mean, again, very famous in Germany. I don't know if she had much of a career here in America. So next, we're moving on to Rosenkavalier, and I've clearly spent far too much time on, on Dutchman, so we're going to sort of whiz through, but you're all experts, so it's fine. So what's interesting to know about Strauss is Strauss was an avid Wagnerian, and at the beginning of his career, he did um, several operas that he tried to emulate a lot of the tools that Wagner set out. So the large orchestra, bigger voices, a leitmotivic framework, and also really trying to stretch sort of the idea of aria and uh, duet, really trying to, you know, not make it like in Verdi where you hear, I'm sorry to use Verdi as so many examples today, but where you hear like, uh, you know, chord, or chord, chord, and oh, time to clap. You know what I mean? Trying to get away from that. You clap only at the end of the opera type thing. Gotcha? So, but with Rosenkavalier, it's quite interesting because the two operas he did before this was Salome and Electra. And so those two operas were very much in the Wagnerian vein. They were, A, they were one-act operas with no intermissions, so they like really took it to an extent. Um, but B, they sort of had these huge orchestras and were very, they almost sounded very chromatic and jarring. But then with Rosenkav, Strauss agreed with his librettist, Hoffmann Stahl, that he wanted to create something a little more, shall we say, upbeat? I don't know. Um, more, of a, <laughs> more of a comedy. And so with this, though, his musical sort of idea changed. It became far more tonal. And when I say tonal, I just mean it's, uh, it's less jarring in a way because we're used to hearing a sort of a key and hearing notes align in a certain hierarchy within that key. Um, and so a lot of people actually reacted against this. The people were very like, oh, Strauss is Wagnerian. We're kind of like, whoa, 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 wait, what's going on here? Well, of course, the greater public was like, oh, my God, this is great. I can listen to this. It's not crazy anymore. 
Um, and that's because he infused a lot of melodies. I mean, there's melodies in the other ones, but these were a lot of waltz melodies, things you could hum after and things like that. But despite doing all that, it's still very Wagnerian. It's just subtly Wagnerian. So that's what we're going to explore here by looking at the leitmotifs. So can, I want, I'm going to play this leitmotif. I'm curious if anyone can tell me what it is. If you don't, don't worry. It's never associated with anyone saying it. So, oh, another thing to note is with Strauss, we start to get leitmotifs where they just live in the orchestra. And you're kind of like, hmm, maybe I know what that is. Maybe I don't. And so that's Octavian's motif. And now in the next, well, I'm going to continue through the overture, and it will happen several times. And it will happen several times among a lot of other motifs I'm not going to go into that are quite chaotic and very sensual. And the reason for that is that what's happening behind that curtain at the moment, as the orchestra is trying to suggest, is that the Marshallin, who is the 32-year-old married woman, and Octavian are making love. So we're actually going to hear that in the music. You'll hear Octavian being like, Octavian's here. And then the love motifs in between it that are very frenzied. And then it speeds up, speeds up, speeds up. And then we hear Octavian's motif go off rep uh, re repeatedly, several times, very loudly, at the climax. I'll just let you take that. Um, and so let's just hear that. So Octavian. Frantic love motifs. Octavian. Frantic love motifs. Octavian. Frantic love motifs. Octavian. Octavian, Octavian, Octavian. So we could say a little bit of Zalame was there with a voyeuristic aspect, perhaps. But um, so that's what happens there. Now, it's worth noting, this is a production that was done in 1960. Um, can I, does anyone know who the conductor is? Yes, it's Herbert von Karajan. Um, and so he was very famous for conducting this fast. Um, and so, until later. But anyway, uh, Herbert von Karajan, and so who else is in this production? It's Octavian is Sena Jodinatz, who was a very famous Octavian at this time, singing with Böhm. And then we have uh, Anneliese Rotenberger as Sophie, and then as the Marshland, which is somewhat, uh, you know, a problematic issue, but is Elisabeth Schwarzkopf. And this is somewhat of a, a dramatic issue because originally Herbert von Karajan asked for Lisa Della Casa in the role. And of course, this would have made Lisa Della Casa much more famous than she is today. Um, for, I mean, she was very gorgeous and everything. And maybe that's why Herbert von Karajan wanted her there. I don't know. Anyway, not going to bring that up. But uh, the point is, Walter Legg, who is uh, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf's husband and also the producer, chose Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. Anyway, she's wonderful. She's brilliant. She's one of my favorite Marshallins. But I always enjoy that story. But I also love Lisa Della Casa. Moving on. Um, so next, we're going to see just how what Strauss starts to do when Wagner does in his later operas is he really starts to transform these motifs. So musically, they'll transform to tell you that something different is happening on stage rather than just like Octavian, Octavian, Octavian. Did you hear Octavian? So here, what we're going to hear is the Octavian motif go off immediately when I play the clip. And what it is, it's now in this sort of interesting waltz melody. And so in this waltz rhythm, it's sort of playing with it and toying with it. And that's why, because what's about to happen is Octavian's about to walk out in drag. So it's now a woman playing a man, playing a woman. Um, and so the idea is it's sort of flitting with the fact that they're sort of tricking around the Marshallin and Octavian with one another. So we'll hear that in the orchestra. That was it right there. There again. So you heard that was that bum 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 so in this one, Octavian's motif makes another transformation. So this is, of course, the Marshallin or Octavian. They both leave each other, shall we say. And then Sophie, um, he, uh, Octavian meets Sophie, who is this woman right here, and immediately falls in love with her. 
And so here, Octavian sort of professes his love to her, and of course, his motif comes out, but now it becomes transformed into this love uh, me uh, melody. And so you hear it sort of connected. You'll hear first the Octavian motif, and then the, and I'll sort of wildly gesture, and you'll figure it out. Now we're gonna move on to the Marshland. So the Marshland has several motifs, and these are the really ones that like, ugh, they get you here, especially at the end of Act One, when the Marshland and Octavian split up. And so the first one we're gonna hear is this one. So that motif is associated with Octavian and the Martians' love for one another. And so we hear that, of course, that was when they were sleeping together. So, you know, it played in the orchestra telling us what's going to happen on stage. And then now we hear it at the end of Act One. And this is when the Marshland says to Octavian that today or tomorrow you're going to leave me because I'm aging, I'm going to become undesirable to you, and all men are basically fickle is what she's also suggesting. And so what happens is Octavian then rebuts no, 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 and then it sort of evokes that motif, and then of course the Marshallian says, no, and then also evokes the motif. So then just, uh, so there's that one, and then there's another motif, there's a lot of motifs with the Marshland. So this mo motif of the Marshland is her motif of resignation, where she accepts the fact that she's going to have to leave Octavian or else he'll leave her, and sort of accepting the way of the world, that women will age and then men will no longer desire them. What we see is particularly that in Rosen Cavalier, Strauss is drawing on this very Germanic tradition of this leitmotivic complexity in opera. And so basically we're seeing that he's drawing on several of the things that we've seen in Wagner's operas that were developed, and he's using them, and that sort of becomes this idea of a German style. So this one is, yes, associated with her resignation and comes back again at Act One, as we'll see. So with that one, what it was, it was the ba-da-da-da, ba-da-da-da. And so at the end, again, where she, where the Marshallin finally says, Octavian, you must leave me, um, what we hear at this moment, first we hear the frenzied sexual motifs of the overture come back, and you'll watch Schwarzkopf kind of shudder, kind of not wanting to think about that anymore, because she, of course, is trying to, um, res uh, you know, leave him. And then we'll hear after the resignation motif come in. Right there. Yeah. 
So did you catch that? It was the ba da 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 ba da da. It kind of went off again and again and again. That's the whole fabric. So I just wanted to mention this one because I think it's gorgeous, but it's not. It only comes back really poignantly at the end. Um, so this is another one associated with Octavian and Marshland's uh, love. And so we'll hear it in this scene, um, again, as she's sort of saying goodbye to him. And we'll hear it come up in the orchestra again. So there's the resignation motif. So in this opera, it's very famous that it's a trio of women as the protagonists, right? Despite the fact Octavian is obviously a man, but it's a woman singing that role. So you have Sophie, the young ingenue, and then you have Octavian, who's our protagonist, and you have the Marshallin, who's supposed to be the older middle-aged woman. Um, now, it's interesting to consider how these women were, uh, were cast um, throughout the century, actually, because it's very quite chaotic. And, and also the messages that critics understood from the way they were cast is, again, very different depending on the woman. So I just wanted to, I'm focusing here particularly on uh, the Marshallin just for sake of time. So originally it was uh, cast with uh, Margareta Sims, who actually would sing some Wagner later in her career. And then we had a famous singer named Lotte Lehmann take up the role, who was also a famous Wagnerian. So this Wagnerian sound kind of became associated with the role of the Marshallin, partially to give her the sense of age, because her voice is bigger, she might be older, it's a different color to it. And also, of course, being an older woman, which is usually the women who are performing Wagnerian roles, she looks the part as well because we're expecting her to be older. But when Strauss originally composed the role, it was originally uh, said that it had to be a 32-year-old woman. So, I mean, she's, smart, she's supposed to be breaching toward middle age, but she's supposed to be young and beautiful and very, she's very much supposed to catch the eye of Octavian because she's supposed to be very gorgeous and desirable. And so then we have someone like Frida Hempel, who would premiere it in Germany, um, outside of Dresden. And Frida Hempel actually was asked by Strauss to perform Sophie first, then Octavian, and then the Marshland. So this idea that one woman, in the matter of a year, could embody all three voices of this role. So the idea that the Marshland's not supposed to, maybe, according to the, the composer, we, we can perform it however we want. But the idea that wasn't originally intended, that the Marshallin was supposed to seem so different from the other people on stage, right? She's supposed to be very much, she's supposed to turn heads. She's supposed to uh, be, be this sort of woman that we're not surprised that Octavian likes her, as opposed to seeing, you know, a six-year-old on stage and being like, wait, what? He's supposed to be 17 years old, I don't understand. Um, and so then that sort of tradition was then embodied by Lisa de la Casa and Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. So first I just want to talk about the matronly tradition a bit. And so I use the word matronly only because a lot of critics sort of described it this way. And they also described sort of the warmth and the generosity of the Marshallin that were associated with this. And so the person behind here who was very famous for it was um, Lotte Lehmann. And so Lotte Lehmann, uh, originally, as she'll tell you in a clip I'll show, she sang all three roles and sort of grew through them. But then she got very identified with the Marshallin. And then she took the Marshallin until she retired. And so as a result, as she grew older, people sort of associated the Marshallin with her, and then we had an older idea of what the Marshallin should look and sound like, if you're following what I'm saying. And then this picture is taken actually from the Metropolitan Opera in 1960, and this is when uh, Régine Crespin made her uh, debut as the Marshallin, and then they invited in Lotte Lehmann in order to uh, direct her, basically. And so this idea of passing down how to perform the matronly tradition of the Marshallin begins. So... I just wanted to play for you. So A, she said, uh, just Lotte Lehmann says some things here just to give you a little context. I don't think I have to tell you what the role of the Marshallin has meant in my life as an artist. I have sung all three roles in Rosenkavalier. First as a young beginner, Sophie, later as the bearer of the rose, Count Octavian, and then the Marshallin. And uh, it is this a very nostalgic feeling that I have to watch Kena Cotton to something which I would like to do if I have a voice. Okay. So then, despite saying that, she does it. 
Um, and so they film her. This is the act one monologue where she's sort of thinking, why is the world the way it is? And like, why is it that people are now going to see me as old when I've stayed the same and yet the world sees me as changing? It's this very sort of philosophical dialogue. It's very, or dialogue, monologue. It's very famous in this. Um, and so what I want you to look for here is just see how she kind of performs it in this very, it's very melodramatic. There's also this sort of sense of like, she's resigning herself already to like, this is going to happen and she's kind of okay with it to an extent. So just kind of read what you will into that and then we'll contrast it with another interpretation. So you can sort of see at the end there, she kind of smiles about it. And the motif that was playing in the background, did anyone notice what it was? It was the resignation motif. So this idea that she was asking, what is a woman to do? And then it's like, oh, I have to resign myself to this fate. Right? And she kind of smiles and is like, oh, that's what I have to do because I'm a wise and matronly woman. That's sort of this idea of this interpretation. Now, the second interpretation that came out in the 1950s was the one of Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. And so this happened actually at the instigation. Elizabeth Schwarzkopf was a very famous Sophie early in her career. And then Karian and Valtaleg wanted her to become the next Marshallin. And so they sort of uh, interested her in the role. And then when she performed it, she got a lot of reviews, especially at the beginning, because it was very controversial, because she didn't do it in this sort of matronly warm fashion. She was very skeptical of what's going on, and she was afraid, and people called her, well, people called her skittish on stage. Like, she seemed mentally perhaps ill, because she was sort of constantly being, like, afraid of what's going on and, and so emotional. And then also later, people called her bitter, as if rather than at the end, which we'll see where she's supposed to sort of say, oh, yes, this is okay, she kind of seemed like she was still mad about it. Right. And so that was very controversial at that time. And it also but it worked in a way because she looked so much younger. Right. This idea that she was like, no, I'm not that old. I'm still young. And the fact that men are able to cheat on us or have whatever women they want. You know what I mean? Why is that this sort of double standard thing? And then Lisa de la Casa also sort of followed in this tradition again because she was so stunning in the role. Oh, here's a it's just a quote from uh, uh, Alan Jefferson. Who's a, he actually wrote the biography on um, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, and he also wrote uh, the Rosen Cavalier uh, Compendium. And so he talks about this sort of the way it was received originally. Of course, once she performed it and aged more into the role, people suddenly were okay with it. And in the 60s, she all of a sudden became sort of the definitive Marshallin. So here we're just going to watch the same scene. This one has uh, subtitles.
we're on to our final part of Rosenkavalier. Will the Marshland ever love again? And this becomes a question with a lot of the stagings that happen. They're kind of like, will she go find another lover that's not her husband? Will Octavian just leave Sophie and still have her on the side? Who knows? And this more gets interpreted by critics at the very last scene. And so what happens at the end is when Sophie and Octavian finally unite, Fanny Nal, who's Sophie's father, comes into the room and says, oh, is that not way the young love is? And sort of the Marshallin looks at him and says this very enigmatic, yeah, yeah, right? And sort of this sort of yes, yes. But it can be said in many different ways. In the way the body language is, it could be many different interpretations. It could be sarcastic. It could be an actual, yes, this is the way young love is. Or it could be a very bitter sort of, well, you know, he's going to just leave her like he left me, right? Sort of idea when she gets older. So it's montage time. Um, the first one I want to show you is the Schwarzkopf one, because this is very famous. Um, so here, when she says, yeah, yeah, it's kind of sarcastic. She's kind of like, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? And then she walks away and then like leaves her hand out with the handkerchief. And then, of course, uh, Octavian goes and, and holds it. And again, it's this kind of question like, is he still maybe in love with her? Maybe he'll follow her after? Who knows? So here. So you can kind of see how people kind of said maybe she was bitter at the end, right? This sort of interpretation that way, rather than perhaps in the 50s really understanding what was going on. Also, a lot of the critics that were writing this were men, so that's also something to consider. So this next one is a famous production that was done in the 60s. It's the Otto Schenk production that was done in Vienna, and they only very recently got rid of it. It was like beloved to them. It was the, the seen as the ideal uh, Rosenkavalier. And so when it debuted, it was very famously, with the Marshallin, was Gwyneth Jones, a very famous Wagnerian. So you'd think, oh, she's going to fall into the matronly tradition, perhaps. But actually, interestingly, she really pulls her voice back for this. So it's kind of hard to tell if she's actually Wagnerian. Anyway, um, but she does look, again, very much this sort of beautiful woman, you know, sexually desirable, all of these things. And so with this one, some, what some of the critics said was at the end, when the way you'll see Octavian react to kissing her hand, that perhaps you know, they're going to meet up after maybe. And like, really, is he going to stick to one woman? Maybe not. And maybe the Marshall is going to continue with her way despite saying everything that happened. Um, so you can watch this one. That was lecturer Matthew Timmermans, guiding us through the legacy of Wagner's influence on German opera. If you enjoyed today's episode and are interested in learning more about other Metropolitan Opera Guild programs, visit metguild.org for more information. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.